0: I told you about my little dog getting flattened in the highway out in front of my boy's home. I won't go into that in any more detail, except that I've learned a lot of lessons from my little dog as I witness behavior of little animals, even of birds and other creatures, and certain similarities in behavior between dogs and human beings. There is a way in which we grow. We grow up very, very rapidly physically, and there are other ways in which we almost never grow up. And there's a scripture about growing up in the Bible. You'll think that immediately in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, as to what the church is all about. Why Christ set apostles, plural, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the church. Are those men any greater men, any better men than any of the rest of us? The answer is no, they are not. That is somewhat shocking, somewhat alarming oftentimes to parishioners, to people in the congregation, to find out that even the Bible itself said that Elijah was a man of like passions. That's an interesting word, passions. Like passions, or you might translate it emotions, with us. Now the passions are the chief emotions. Emotions of love, of hate, of rage, of fear, And these emotions that we all experience can be called passions, and what they do is they sometimes distort the face, cause almost violent physiological reactions in the body. Emotions can be, according to the dictionary, one, a state of mind, two, a state of the physical body, and three, a type of behavior. But always the mind and the way it influences the rest of the body, having to do even with the major glands of the body, the viscera of the body, having to do with the lungs, the head, as we say, the heart, meaning the pulse beat. I think a lot of you have heard some of the real funny records by Cosby and some of the others. and There is a comeback by a drug addict who is now making a comeback. He's one of the famous black comedians. And he is making quite a good deal of mileage out of having had some sort of an explosion, I think was involved in actually burning or heating or converting to smoke, some kind of a drug, whatever it was he was doing. And so he is hilarious when he tells people that when you are on fire and you're running along the road, everybody gets out of your way, that you're a VIP all of a sudden because people really respect you when you're on fire. Well, he gets a tremendous laugh and so on because he is talking about being on fire well I imagine that he uh, was yelling and screaming and very excited all right and maybe he did run a lot of people make that mistake if they are in an automobile accident an industrial accident and suddenly they catch on fire people have had grease spill in a kitchen and they just run right out on the sidewalk and start running and their clothes are flaming and they're doing the worst possible thing if they had control of their emotions they should immediately Wrap themselves in the rug on the floor, rush to the bedroom and roll in the bedclothes, anything but smother the flames out instantly and not run, but get down and if they don't have any rags or anything, just roll on the ground and get the flames under them. Most people don't do that because most people do not know how to react emotionally to an emergency. Now it says here in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, that the reason these ministers are set in God's church. And they are people of like passions, like emotions with the rest of us. They are not better than we are. They have merely been given a different calling. They have a different function. They are people who allegedly, and certainly we hope so and pray so, are educated in the Bible. Maybe even biblical history or archaeology or geology or some of the other studies that might be relative to the Bible. But they are not there to be great, exalted, angelic beings so far out of reach above all the rest of us that they always pontificate, they talk down to us, they look down upon us, and we are a subspecies while all of these great dictator-type leaders are way towering above all the rest of us. That is not what this is saying at all. Verse 12, why are all of these various ministerial functions set in the church of God for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, that means constructing or building up, of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, showing that during this process there will be any number of various ideas, a certain lack of unity, room for doubt, room for certain disagreements, room for a lack of understanding. And that this is not cause for disfellowshipment but the very function of the ministry is to gradually over a period of time and actually god's word shows over a period of epochs virtually ages virtually of bringing the church to that final place of the marriage supper of the lamb and the second coming of christ and that up until that time so long as we are human we're in the human flesh we will never have perfect unity that is a goal it's a heavenly goal It's one toward which we should strive, but as long as we're in this flesh, we will never have it perfectly. We all ought to be mature enough to know better than that. We just won't have it perfectly. To demand it, and for pastors to begin to demand it of their people, and to rule through fear, to try to force people into a certain mold so that there is no room for independence of any sort. is is really a very grave error and a very grave and sad thing to do to the people of God. Now, if the ministry is there for the purpose of gradually leading people toward the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a mature, the margin says, perfect, perhaps is a little bit misleading because perfection is a state toward which we strive, but is virtually unattainable in a sense, as long as we're in the human flesh, a perfect or mature man, spiritually, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. A very rich statement. And it's like saying the width, the breadth, the height, the mental, spiritual, emotional, and physical maturity of Jesus Christ himself. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. We ought to be mature enough to recognize deceivers and not to listen to them and not to be carried off base by every little wind of doctrine that someone whispers in our ear. But speaking the truth in love may grow up, grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Now if we're not yet grown up, if we don't yet have the perfect unity of the faith, if we're still striving toward that, perfect state of total unanimity of purpose and total unanimity of doctrine and state of mind, then the pastors and the teachers of the Church have still got a problem on their hands. I always used to take the view in Ambassador College, first as its Executive Vice President for many years, and then later as its President, that every new year when we had a new flock of freshmen, we were getting the same batch of problems all over again. Others didn't have the same approach. I had the same approach at our summer educational program. I did not abide, I did not agree with those who believed in what I call preventive legislation, because even God does not believe in preventive legislation. The Ten Commandments do not prevent murder. Just that simple, without elaborating upon it. All the caution signs and the 55-mile-per-hour road signs in the world do not prevent automobile accidents. There are the laws, there is the legislation, they don't prevent anything because we still have free moral agency. Now, oftentimes, instead of recognizing a body of believers as a body of people who need love and care and understanding and patience and who will challenge and will try and will strain every conceivable emotion of which a minister is capable, who will be a real trial to him, it seems that some of these pastors adopt the idea, you are not going to be my problem. And so I'm going to force you not to bring to me any problems. You are not going to have a demon problem, or we'll put you out. You will not have any lack of faith for healing, or we'll put you out. You will not have a doctrinal question because you don't ask questions, or we will put you out. Now I think you understand that approach. I'm saying that is not God's approach, that is not what this is talking about, it is not the manner or the form in which a minister is supposed to perform and to serve his people. As we were conceived, we began to grow in the womb very rapidly, and you've seen some of the pictures of fetal development. Believe it or not, you began to feel before you began to hear, you began to hear before you could begin to smell, and you began to hear before you could begin to taste. Touch and feel gradually became an awareness of yours, probably at about the fourth or fifth month. It has been determined that little fetuses that develop up to about the sixth seventh month in the womb before they are born in a very, very noisy household are actually, believe it or not, having some of those sounds and noises transmitted through the wall of the abdomen and that the child itself can be be squirming and jumping around in there and so on and be upset by what's going on in the environment. The child does not smell until it comes out into the air. It does not see until it is born. It does not really hear except through the sensations transmitted through the fluids while it is in the womb. Now, to illustrate the point, when we are born we very rapidly begin to grow and within only weeks it's remarkable how how rapidly some babies can put on length and weight and so on. It's just fantastic. Little little kittens, little puppies, you know, are so cute and so sweet and so tiny when they're little with their eyes closed and in a matter of weeks you can have a great big gangly pup, you can feed him so many of those big boxes of food you can't believe it, and pretty soon when he wants to lick you when you get home, he puts his paws on your chest, and licks a face almost right off of you, you know. And here's this great big huge thing, you've got to feed him about 20 pounds a day. Now, Great Dane puppies are little bitty puppies, and German Shepherd puppies are cute, and in about six weeks they got feet about that big around, and they're real gangly and awkward and everything, and they're just growing like a weed. We're the same way. And the way we begin to grow is, first of all, physically. As a young little baby, we are mostly a bundle of emotions. It says very clearly in the Bible that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. And we all know that as a little bundle of emotion, we were capable of giving our parents great joy, of being a plaything, of being almost like a toy to them, and at the same time of causing them heartache, great fear. What mother is it with a brand new baby that hears a strange kind of a gurgling, choking sound in the nursery that doesn't run in there with her heart in her throat wondering, is the baby still breathing? What mother is it who awakening in the morning when the baby is asleep hearing about such things as plastic wrappers or people, babies getting entangled in their uh, bed clothing or their Uh, covering over the bed or hearing about crib death or something like that, looks very carefully and is vastly relieved to see the little baby's chest rising and falling and know that that little precious life is still alive. What mother is there who when a child chokes, as they do so many hundreds of times growing up, on their food or their water, doesn't almost get frantic with fear, hoping it's going to be over very, very quickly? The way a baby expresses itself is by wildly gesticulating its arms and legs, crying lustfully, letting everybody know it's displeasure, or, as parents are quick to notice, if you toss them in the air, which I don't recommend, or you grab them and hold them and go, "Aboo!" We we, we play games and make idiotic noises as parents and we breathe right in our kids' faces, which you would never think to do. If I went up to you as a mature adult and grabbed your shoulders and said, "Aboo!" into your face, you know, and you say, ah, wh- where did you get those lovely uh, onions you had with your steak, you know, wouldn't you think you're an idiot? But babies don't think parents are idiots, they just laugh and they smile so big, oh that's funny, you know, it's just real funny to see that face coming at you and then stopping all of a sudden and, and the, the child will begin to giggle and chuckle and when they laugh out loud the parent is rewarded. They just, they just love it, you know, they're just having the biggest ball in the world if they can get this real chuckle out of a little child by playing little games with them. Well then sometimes the child begins to become a little bit of a tribulation. They begin to cry, sometimes they scream, and they gasp for breath, and they get red in the face, and they kick their legs, and they get just downright mad. Now, the only way a baby can express himself is emotionally. And as we grow up, and I remember so well, so many of the experiences in grade school and junior high and high school, it's a very painful process. Junior high and high school are some of the most absolutely embarrassing, awkward, painful years that I remember in my life. By the time I was 18, 19, or 20 and in the Navy, it wasn't painful anymore. When I was 15 or 16, went to my first proms, had my first dates, had the experiences of the various cliques in school, the ones that were in and out, the kids that lived on the other side of the tracks, like me, the kid that lived in an unpainted house whose daddy was a preacher of a little old unpainted clapboard shirts that had nothing but an outhouse out on West 8th Street and kept Saturday for Sunday. You talk about embarrassed. I didn't even want to let kids know where I lived. One day a bunch of kids decided they would ride home with me on their bicycles, and I tried to lose them in the alleys. I didn't want them to follow me home, for pity's sake. It's a terrible age, an age of of great raw emotions, of towering romances, great dreams and hopes, of dashed and frustrated expectations, and it's a time of a growth, too, of the mind. But the last way in which we grow up, it seems, is spiritually. We grow up first physically, and then eventually we grow up a little bit mentally. We don't all develop the way we should mentally. And then we grow up emotionally, maybe, and then we grow up spiritually. Now looking at those four levels, all of us are grown, if we are mature adults, physically. We're as big as we're well. We're not as big as we're going to get, let's say, that that could vary, but we are as tall as we're going to get. You cannot, the Bible says, by taking anxious thought, add anything at all to your heights. You can grow out or you can grow in, but you can't get any taller. All right, we grow up mentally, but do we really? I look at the mind and I think of the most fabulous, beautiful, intricate computer that has ever been remotely envisioned by man that should be a very sharp instrument, and in a lot of cases we leave it as a rusted, kind of dull, creaky, old, inadequate instrument that isn't really doing the kind of a job it should. A lot of us have had hopes and dreams of wanting to learn and to acquire certain skills, to study certain things, I went through school, like everybody else, promising myself I would do a couple of dozen extra research papers. I was going to study harder, I was going to get better grades, I was going to learn more. I fell far short of the goals that I set for myself. I've always been very thankful that I learned Spanish and a little bit of some of the other languages. But I wish, like everything, I was fluent in French and fluent in German, as well as in Spanish, maybe another couple of languages I could wish I knew. Like Russian, for example, for today, so I could understand what some of those people are saying and what they're writing. So many of us have great capacities for developing our minds. We have the incredible amount of storage of millions of permutations of memories in a complex computerized memory box in our minds, and we have not committed to memory a fraction of what we really could have. And if we would develop our minds and grow up mentally far more than we have, perhaps we would also find that we're growing up more emotionally because the two are interwoven. The two are inextricably intertwined. The more knowledge you accumulate, the more understanding you accumulate, then the more likely it is you're going to be able to control your emotions. Notice Galatians 5 and verse 19. This is where we learn about the works of the flesh, and we're familiar with this scripture. Galatians 5, 19. Now, the works of the flesh. What is the word works? It means manifestations of the body, is what it means. It means the evidence of physical activity. And Now, remember, one of the definitions of emotion is both state of the body and type of behavior. Now, when we see someone who is very angrily waving his arms in the air and stamping his feet, we, we probably know he's mad. If we look at all these various lusts, these great towering appetites, these various vanities, hatreds, jealousies, and emotions of human nature. Every one of them has a physical application, as well as a mental or an emotional application. The works of the flesh are evident, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred an extreme emotion, variance, and of course that's indecision, saying yes, no, promising, and then breaking your promise emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, that's various movements within organizations of party spirit that attempts to overthrow a certain status quo, heresies, a like emotion, envyings, murders, murder of course comes from hatred and anger and then a violent act, drunkenness, revelings, that's riotous behavior, untoward, awkward uh, behavior, and probably when a person is drunk, and such like, of the which I have told you before, as I have also told you in the time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the opposite now, the fruit of the Spirit, is love. Now love is one of the great passions, one of the great emotions. Hatred is the opposite of love. Joy. That's happiness, a bubbling, abundant happiness, a sprightly, bright, ebullient, happy, joyful personality. Peace, that means peace of mind, certainly, mental tranquility, a lack of uh, arguments and hatred and strife, peace of mind. So those three, and they're put in that order, love, which is an outgoing concern toward the one being loved and is not an incoming, ugly, ingrown desire to have, It is impossible to fall in love. The story Hollywood tells, the story the books and the novels tell, the story that the music tries to put in the minds of young people, people walk by and you will just make a joke out of it. I I think I'm in love again, you know. We, We joke about that sometimes at the cafeteria, and I won't tell why, but anyway, it's kind of funny. We hear all of these stories about people, quote, falling in love. There are dozens of songs written about that. Love cannot be an accident. You can't fall in love. Love at first sight is absolutely impossible, according to the Word of God, because by its very nature, love means a thorough depth of understanding, a complete sharing of likes and dislikes, of approaches and points of view, of mental and emotional approaches to life, uh, a sharing of knowledge, a sharing of background, a sharing of experience, and a desire to share experiences in life, a desire to serve, a desire to give, a desire to share of all you have, and such an outgoing concern that you would actually lay down your life for someone. Now, no one can ever tell you that a desire to hold somebody's head while they vomit, a desire to lovingly clean up clean up the vomit and clean up the room where the accident occurred, a desire to sit there at a bedside with someone suffering from a debilitating sickness, a desire as Fred does here to help his wife when she sits down to fix the braces and to serve and to wait on her and help her with the crutches which is a marvelous example and that happens instantaneously at first sight you see someone walk around a corner in a bikini I'm in love? Nonsense! That is not love, it is lust. It is a physical desire, a physical attraction, to reach out and to experience some of these emotions, some of these physical appetites of life, but it is not, by any definition, love. Love is something which must be carefully grown into and then nurtured and cared for exactly as you would care for a family garden. It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of forgiveness, it takes a lot of giving, and a lot of sacrifice on both sides or it is not love. Now, when the fruit of God's Holy Spirit is the kind of love and the only place you can read of love, what is the love chapter? What is the Bible definition of love? you got to go to 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest emotion of all, the greatest outgoing concern described in the Bible is love, and it's described in 1 Corinthians 13 as to what love does, what it's like, it's long-suffering, it believes the best, it endures all things, and so on. And we read what God's form of love really is and the kind of love that God has toward us. So love is not lust. It can't happen suddenly. We don't fall into it. We grow into it very slowly. And it is a very vast and a wide range of emotion. It is anything but just sex. Sex may follow, but it will be a normal, natural outgrowth of a deeply sharing experience which is love and not lust, which is not merely physical, but which is emotional and of the heart and of the total spirit and is actually a spiritual experience when it is correct and done between husband and wife in marriage in the way that God intends. Love, joy, and I haven't known an awful lot of joyful people. I really have not. Now oftentimes emotions can be stifled and they're not necessarily our fault. A lot of you are lacking in certain knowledge, let's say, certain information that you never accumulated and didn't put into your mind over a period of years as you were growing up and going to school. And that's not your fault. You were obviously victims of circumstance. Your background, your parents, your upbringing, the school to which you went, whether or not you were out a year or so, with a near infection or a sickness, a lot of parameters, a lot of inputs, affected and formed and shaped your educational process and put into your mind what you know, or what you think you know, or what I know, or what I think I know. Some know more than others. Some know more than others in certain directions and some of us, like me, know virtually nothing at all about how to read music, for example. I was joking about that before. I don't know what those black bars and, and uh, round circles and so on are on a page of music. I can sing by ear. I can hear a song and join in, but I cannot take a song book. And go over there and have you point to a note and me point to a key on that piano and hit the right one and have the faintest idea how the two interrelate, because I simply never was educated in that particular direction. I don't know. If you ask me to sit here and tell you exactly how a telephone switchboard and automatic dialing, nonstop, you know I mean by satellite direct dialing to Switzerland works, I don't know. But there are those with the mind to tell you exactly how that works. If you were to ask me to explain to you what some of those scientists know at JPL in Pasadena, I simply couldn't do it. It's not my field. I don't know. I have only the sketchiest idea of how some of that is done. And so it is in various other fields. But emotionally, a lot of us are twisted. We have been perverted and kind of, as we say, bent out of shape as we grew up, oftentimes a repressive parent. Sometimes a parent that punished too much or punished virtually not at all can affect us very deeply emotionally. Now, we hear of all of these things about emotions, you know, I'm suffocating, I'm freezing to death, or I, it was like lead in my stomach when, when I saw the car approaching, or I thought I was going to die, or whatever, and we've heard some of the jokes about it, like Cosby who says the last time he got a ticket he thought the cop had to be in his trunk. He said, I was going along, all of a sudden, and there he was, where was he? He had to be in my trunk. He was hiding inside the trunk of my car. But if you've driven along and all of a sudden there's a big red gumball machine flashing in the back of your rear view mirror, and your heart just leaps clear up to your throat, you break out in a clammy sweat, the adrenaline pumps into your body, and you're saying, oh, no. And you talk about upset. You think of what that's going to do to your insurance payments, what it does to your ego. In the first place, you feel like a fool. You're pulled over, and everybody's going by, and everybody's looking. And the cop always seems determined, and he's got you. I mean, you're there like a butterfly on a pin. You can't move. You're at the curb, but he's got to leave the stupid red light on. So that for blocks coming and going, everybody sees a red light. When they go by, they all look. And there you are, sitting there like a guilty criminal, caught doing something. He is standing there making out your nice little summons to the courthouse down here. And then you're so stupid that when he drives off, you say, thank you. <laughs> he has just given you something that's going to cost you $35 and a higher insurance payment, and you thank him for it. Anyway, it I don't know about you, but it causes me a real surge of adrenaline. I always had a real surge of adrenaline just before a basketball game. When you're frightened very badly, you will have that happen to you. Now, you can tell, and they train some of the people in the Customs Bureau, for example, to notice whether or not people are trying to conceal something. There are all sorts of signs. They will try to be very affable and friendly. They'll try to make a joke. How you doing? Yeah, really great to be back in the United States. Hey, did you hear the one about? Open the suitcase, buddy. I want to see what you're hiding in there, you know. Or if somebody's just very quiet and says nothing at the two extremes, they get a little nervous. If you're just relaxed and kind of easygoing and no big deal, you're not frightened, there isn't a perspiration on your forehead, you're not kind of fidgeting and picking at non-existent lint, they may let you go through without looking at your bag. But they are trained, and they take courses where they sit and listen to psychiatrists and psychologists talk about various physical manifestations of emotion. Someone trying to hide something, trying to keep a secret, who knows, as he looks you in the eye, that he's got a, an uncut diamond in his sock, rolled up in his dirty laundry in his suitcase, may just give it away by his behavior. Now they can take you in and they can hook you up to a, what is it called, it's a sphygmonometer, isn't it, sphygmonometer, if I can to pronounce it, anyway, that, uh, and a pneumometer, and of course the EKG and all of that stuff. And so they can measure your pulse rate, your breathing rate, uh, they can measure electrical activity in the body, they can measure body heat, and so on. And they will have these people and they will show them exciting pictures. Or they will take their fingernails and rasp it along their arm a little bit. Or they'll pinch them good and sharply, just as a matter of an experiment. Or they will subject them to very loud, sudden noises. And they will see what fright does to the body. And there have been studies on this. You'd be amazed if you looked up in an encyclopedia the article Emotion, as I was doing this morning, at the bibliography. It's unbelievable at how many books, and that's only a fraction of them, have been written by people all the way from Augustine to Freud about the way we human beings affect our bodies and the way our cultures and our lives are affected by our emotions. It's an almost endless story of empowering emotions of our life. The ones in the evil category and the others in the category of God's law, love, joy, and peace, are the goals toward which we are to press. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Now, of course, long-suffering means patience, as we know. But it means the kind of patience, it means patience in trial, because it's talking about suffering. And I'm not real patient when I am suffering. Most of us aren't. When we're hurting, hurting either emotionally or hurting physically, is not the time when we really want to be enduring, when we want to just endure it, and just hang in there and continue to suffer long. Not to suffer short and then blow up or just blow out and quit at all like some people do. I think the most vicious example of suicide I ever heard of, and apparently the Latin temperament is what caused this, was a Puerto Rican who jumped out of about a 50-story window in New York City after having slashed both wrists, then poured gasoline on himself and struck a match. Now, there was a man who wanted to make sure. He jumped out of a window which would have killed him, he cut his wrist, which would have killed him, and he set himself fire, which would have killed him. There was no way that he was going to escape dying. Maybe the Latin temperament had something to do with that. But once in a while, people can just absolutely lose complete control. It happens all the time. Every time you listen to a newscast, every time you read a newspaper, you will read of another murder, of a rape, of, of a mugging, a robbery. You'll read of some violent emotional behavior on the part of some other human being who afflicts pain, or causes property damage or steals valuable items and takes it away from someone else. And that is because of human beings who are just about like an animal when it comes to really balanced and really mature and educated emotionally. Now when I see little children, as we do so often out in the general public, and I've had a great deal of experience in the educational field and seen what happens in some of the kindergartens and the grade schools of our world, the absolutely unbridled behavior that is allowed. I, for one, have never understood parents who allow children to scream, to throw things, to carry on, to just cause an absolute chaotic disruption wherever they go. I've seen it all of my life, in restaurants and cafeterias and public places, in church and in school, in every conceivable situation where people can be with their children. I've seen good examples and absolutely wretched examples, but I could never understand a mother with a child, let's say, at a concert. Someone is standing up there, everyone is in their very best tuxedo, and someone is on an oboe, and someone else a flute, and someone else maybe on a cello and a violin. One of these very starched collar things where you can hear a pin drop. Little child starts to scream, the parent just bounces the kid. and and looks over it and pretends to ignore it because at home the parent ignores it. and really, Basically, the parent may not really even hear it in the same way that everybody else hears it. I wanted to go over there and say, Madam, excuse me, but there is a monster loose, and it happens to be sitting in your lap. It's making the most awkward, horrific noise. I'm not quite sure how to identify it. Somewhere between a screech and a moan. If that were a cat, would you tolerate it? If it were a parrot, would you put up with it? If it were a dog, would you endure it? Or wouldn't you take the dog by the scruff of the neck and walk to the door and throw the thing outside and maybe put it on a leash and a muzzle around its little mouth? Now, you wouldn't dare say that to a mother or the husband if he were bigger than you were. Probably would knock your block off and you'd wish that you cleaned up your act a little bit. But you know what I mean. You've been in situations where you've seen people with that kind of an example and you've been tempted to take action. I used to have little things that I would hand out to people when they had problems. I remember one time, I don't know what happened to her, the waitress had had a bad night or a bad morning. My wife and I had had a beautiful morning, beautiful night. I remember that, as a matter of fact. We were near the Grand Canyon, remember, a restaurant, we were on our way up to Grand Canyon, we hadn't been married all that long, and we went into the restaurant that morning to order our eggs and toast, and uh, the waitress was in a very, very foul mood. She kind of bellied up to the table with a much-soiled apron and stood there glaring at us, waiting to take the order. I wondered what in the world she was doing. She never said a word. So we gave the order, and she came back, you know, the proverbial angry waitress with a silverware, and stuck her thumb in the middle of the spoon, and, went, and you know, plunked it down beside us, and kind of threw the dishes on, and this and that. It just was just a terrible experience. It just about ruined our breakfast. So as an afterthought, when we left, I just wrote a little note and put down, It pays to smile, and left it under the plate. No tip. I don't tip waitresses that are snotty to me. Sorry, I just don't do it, because I happen to believe that tips are for above and beyond the call of duty, for specially good service. And if you have a slovenly, sullen waitress or a servant who is supposed to be serving you in a a restaurant and does a very bad job, they haven't even earned their salary, let alone a tip. So after that happened, I went down to a local printer in Pasadena, and I made out a little thing, and I got these little perforated things made out It said it pays to smile in red with a little border on them, and I had them put in a little book where I could just tear them out one by one and tear them in my pocket. And I still have some of those somewhere. So if a waitress does a real bad job, just tear it out. There you are. Just learn a little lesson. You smile. You act nice to me. Just pretend. Be an actress. Forget old Henry at home. Don't worry about it. We're the customer. We're here. Smile at It doesn't cost you a thing, and you're going to make a lot of money. Fifteen percent of the cost of a meal today. That's what they're tipping these days. All right. Some of us have grown up in virtually an emotional prison, and we have had our emotions distorted by other people. I've met a lot of people like that in the church. I have met people literally to whom it would have been a devastating experience to smile. It would have been virtually impossible for them. I've met people that you know are level-headed because if they chew tobacco, it comes out of both sides of their mouth at the same time, who have lips downturned like this that, you know, have you ever known people like that? I knew a family in West Texas one time, been in the church for years, and they looked like the proverbial Ma and Pa, Mr. and Mrs. America, you know, and you wanted to see the pitchfork and all the other kids and his hand on her shoulder and the old tin type or daguerreotype or whatever it's called on the wall with this, we are homesteaders, lost six crops, and poor kid, <laughs> weather's well, no good, cow run away. Mule won't get up and plow cotton and hang it all. I'm mad about it. And you, you get him to church, social, doesn't matter what's happening. You can have the funniest things going on up in the state sitting there like that. And you know, they really can't help it. You've got to understand. This is a person that grew up in emotional prison. And they were twisted and perverted into that shape by their parents who unfortunately didn't know how to rear a happy child. They had some bad experiences. Now I've, I've got relatives, I've got one relative I could talk about in great detail, I won't in great detail, but a very thwarted, frustrated person, terrible experience in love and this and that, and just went through life just mad, I mean one consistent emotion, mad a dog would do something. I've seen the relative I'm talking about pick up the dog by its ears and just shake it with the dog just howling. The cat ran off with a little chicken, got the milk, called the cat up, here kitty, 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 the cat came up, pulled out a 22 rifle and shot it right through the eyes. And I remember one time a horse got stung by a bee and went round and round and round a barn and absolutely ended up dragging nothing but a single tree. That hay wagon was destroyed. Well, that horse got hitched up to a big old iron cultivator and did about 40 acres and four seconds flat. Anyway, came back up the top and, I mean, there was lather that deep. That horse, <gasps> like this, just dying, you know, for getting more air in his lungs. The horse didn't even know what it had done. Anytime a horse gets stung with a bee, it's going to run. And just because it was hooked up to a hay wagon didn't mean it was going to run any slower. But I mean, this particular relative showed that horse it doesn't pay to run with a hay wagon after you get stung with a bee. That horse probably wind broke from then on. I wondered why it wheezed for the rest of its life. So many people cannot express the kind of emotions that they should. I know a lot of people you can say they got no class. Now that means to me that they don't know how to express an appropriate emotion for an appropriate occasion. I know that some people laugh in all the wrong places. I did on one occasion, but for a different reason. There are a lot of people that don't even understand good humor, a lot of people don't understand Certain methods or forms of music, or art, or literature, or a classic type of a presentation of some sort. It's just lost on them, and they can't appreciate it. I don't appreciate modern art, for example. To me, it's just so much uh, splashings on canvas done by an idiot or a demon. And I really don't appreciate it. And I'm sorry, I'm perverted in that particular direction. It's part of my education that's lacking. I don't understand it. Real wild punk rock, insane acid rock music and I are, are as foreign as an Abyssinian speaking eth- Ethiopian to a Greek. I don't understand anything at all about that particular kind of music, except it's a kind of a noise. Now on one occasion, I went to an outdoor presentation of Jesus Christ Superstar in Los Angeles, and portions of that I've mentioned I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the song I Don't Know How to Love Him. This was done by the daughter of Joel McRae. I remember that played that part. Very nice. But when it came to the scene with Judas, And he betrayed Christ, and right there in front of us, they had it all set up, We're right in front of the crowd of people, Christ and the officers that were arresting him in the final garden scene. An area opened up where Judas was standing, and we began to see red glowing on him, and he was screaming out and singing this abominable song, and we watched him slowly go to hell right in front of us with the flames leaping around and the red lights playing on his body, and I laughed my head off. I just began to laugh. That was the funniest thing I ever saw. And these people turned around at me and and thought, well, you fool, why are you laughing when that man is going to hell? I thought I was going to get thrown out of that place. I was laughing so hard. Judas was going to hell with fires playing all over his body. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Kind of a half-naked idiot with a big beard and wild, long hair and really a funny-looking guy anyway. And here he was, just (laughs) slowly sinking into the ground. I couldn't seem to help it. Well. I know that emotionally I am not mature yet. There are a lot of areas in which I am emotionally immature. I don't cry over spilled milk. I know that about me. I don't cry even over spilled coffee. I do cry over spilled beer. No, I'm just kidding. But, but, anyway, it is a lesson a lot of people, a lot of people have never yet learned on how not to cry over the proverbial spilled milk. I can, remember a case of someone toying with someone's emotions. It seemed that they were these two British psychiatrists, and they were visiting together until very, very late at night. And the argument raged about how quickly you know, in motion pictures or in plays or in reading something, you could take a person from all sorts of emotions to another emotion, that you could go through every range of human emotions there were, from expectancy to hope to fear to anger to rage and so on, just one after another. And this one made a little bet to the other one. He said, I, "I, I, imagine that I could cause anxiety, anger, and rage all within a minute and a half." He said, "You think you could?" He said, "Yes, I believe I could." He said, "All right, you're on." So he just he just at random opened up the phone book and went down to three o'clock in the morning, and put his finger on a number and dialed it. And a real sleepy voice answered after about eight or nine rings. Who? Well, he says, yes, I say, is uh, Mr. Smedley there? And, no, you got the wrong number. <laughs> Hang it up, you know. He waited, watch this, no, same number. He gave it about a minute, dialed the same number. Hello? He says, yes, is Mr. Smedley there? No! Wham! He said, would you say I've taken him from anxiety to anger? He said, yes, of course. He says, watch total frustration and rage. Called him back. Half a ring. ha he says, yes, my name is Smedley. The there been any calls for me? <laughs> and of course, I guess the guy at this point has ripped the telephone completely off the wall. End of story. But it is possible that people can be taken from one of those things to another very, very quickly. Let's go to Matthew 15 and verse 15. This is certainly talking about the emotion that occurs to us. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 15. A lot of people make religion into a form or a ceremony of all sorts of do's and don'ts, as the Jews did, of all kinds of restrictions on your behavior, even on your dress, on what you eat, on the way you act, your physical activity. And Jesus said that is not the way it is. He explained about what it is that really defiled someone. He said in verse 9, In vain they, these hypocrites, the Jews and the Pharisees in particular, do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he called a multitude and said unto them, verse 10 of Matthew 15, Hear and understand, not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man. I imagine you don't know it, but you've eaten even some insects in your life. If you've eaten in restaurants very much, the time is certainly going to have come and gone when you ate a roach, a nice big moth mixed in your salad dressing, a couple of ants or something. You don't know it, and I don't want to remind you of it especially. Yes, I do, or I wouldn't be saying that. What am I saying? But it didn't really hurt you very badly. Not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. Then came his disciples and said unto them, You know that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? really upset them. They were offended. They had an emotional problem. And he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are you also yet without understanding? Don't you yet understand that whatever enters in at the mouth goes into the belly and is cast out into the draught, the digestive system? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, from that part of the mind that is called the heart where the emotions reside. And they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and of course blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Now those are some of the great rages and the great passions. Lust, hatred, lust in the case of adultery and fornication, hatred in the case of murder or false witness, greed in the case of theft, blasphemy, that's anger, impassioned rage, frustration, inability to control the mouth, There are many people in our society who, if you took away from them all the curse words, all the filthy words, and all blasphemies against God's name, would be virtually tongue-tied. They wouldn't know how to talk. There are many people who, if they did not lace their language with a liberal sprinkling of, of blasphemies, they wouldn't know how to speak to you. And if you took out such words like, you know, a lot of people wouldn't talk at all. They'd never say another word. They wouldn't even start talking because, you know... They just wouldn't, you know, have, you know, anything to, you know, say, you know. Notice that sometime the next time you watch someone on television or you hear people who are not uh, all that well-educated, Especially some athletes I've heard that try to express themselves about playing basketball or football or what have you, and continually understand that the audience understands what they're saying. So they say, you know, and yeah, that's right. So why have the interview? They just hold the camera up there. They ask him a question. He says, you know, thank you very much. We appreciate that interview. We'll go on to the next one. Because, of course, you do know. Well, if you did, why did he ask the question in the first place? But that's another subject. All right. Out of the heart proceed all of these things. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defiles not a man. Let's take a look at this in the book of Jude and look at the great passions and emotions that rage in the minds and the hearts of those that are condemned here, almost typical of demons who are false ministers, false Christs, certain men crept in unawares, verse 4 of the book of Jude, who were before of old ordained of his condemnation, ungodly men. Turning the grace of our God, that's forgiveness, into lasciviousness, which is permission to do evil, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He then talked about the angels, meaning the demons that, that uh, rebelled when Satan rebelled in verse 6, which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation. He is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Now, skimming along a little bit, he said in verse 9, even Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. And apparently there was a time when if the devil would have been able to have preserved Moses' body, of course, a great religion would have been built around that. Wars would have occurred over the possession of it. Pilgrimages would have been taken to the site of it. There's no telling what great evils would have occurred if God had allowed Satan the devil, using human instruments, to have preserved and built some kind of a shrine around the body of Moses. So for God's purposes, he was going to conceal it and never allow the place of Moses' burial to be found. But there was a dispute of of some sort, and Michael, as God's righteous angel, was actually disputing with Satan the devil about the body of Moses. That's the only place in the Bible that we learn about that. Dared not, even though there was quite an exchange, apparently, of, of words between these great spirit beings, durst not bring against him a railing accusation. Michael, as an angel, an archangel, could not lose his temper, and because, and this is quite a lesson, isn't it? Even though Satan the devil had fallen, he was an evil, rebellious spirit, yet his, his uh, shall I say, the fact of his existence or his being or his entity was that of a former archangel and that of a spirit being who was going to live for all eternity. So Michael did not take the liberty of so exalting himself that he talked down even to Satan the devil on his own. It says that he said, The Lord rebuke you. And that is a key, by the way, on dealing with any kind of a demonic problem. If someone is being bothered of something like that, remember what God's word says, The Lord rebuke you. Because that's passing it on to the Lord. That's saying Christ is capable of rebuking you, and that's what they fear. If I were ever to say, I rebuke you, it would scare me to death. I don't have that power. I'm a far less power than any such demonic spirit. So Michael, disputing about the body of Moses, did not dare bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these, these human beings, speak evil of those things which they know not, just unbridled hatred and rampant emotion, anger, hostility. But what they know naturally, just human physical emotion as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Notice a little later on, he says verse 14, Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying behold the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, the only place where Enoch's statements are given the way to Scripture, and there is the so-called lost book of Enoch, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. So their way of life is complete unbridled lust, the great appetites, the great emotions of life, greed, lust, hatred, jealousy, anger, avarice, cunning, and their mouths speaking great swelling words Having men's persons in admiration in order to gain advantage, not because of. The margin would render it differently, and other English versions show that it means that they have people's persons in admiration in order to gain advantage. And, of course, that is par for the course in politics and in most polite society. People are apple polishers, they're, as we say, gold-brickers, they are brass polishers, they like to uh, cuddle up to people in positions of money and wealth and authority. That's why most rich men are cynics, because they know automatically that when people come up and they're all affable and friendly and backslapping slapping and praise, praising of them and so on, they're after their money. Stars, so-called, and that's not what they are, but that's the term they use, in the public eye in radio and television and movies, all feel that way toward their general public. The so-called fans, that's short for fanatic. They really disdain them because they know that it's their own driving desire to have a little bit of the luster rub off on them, to be next to them, to emulate them, a the kind of a hero worship that makes them act the way they do around luminaries. But, beloved, remember you the words that were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you there should be mockers in the last time who would walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be those who separate themselves sensuous or sensual or natural, it says in the margin, that means of the physical human emotions, not having the spirit. The only way we're ever going to grow up up emotionally is by Almighty God changing our natural human nature, which is described in Romans 8 and verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, and changing that nature by giving us the very nature of Jesus Christ. Let's ask the question, What if Christ had been like we are? What is your normal reaction if someone spits in your face? What would your normal reaction be if you were a position in great authority and someone came along and said are you in authority? As Satan the devil tried to do to Jesus Christ in the Great Temptation. What is your normal natural reaction when you are, as you say, about to starve to death, which can happen only about four or five hours after your last meal? And you can hardly wait to get some butter on at least a piece of bread. You can get angry at a waitress in a, in a restaurant for keeping you sitting there 15 or 20 minutes when you want to eat in two to three minutes. And say, where is that waitress? We've been waiting 15 or 20 minutes and I'm about to starve to death. What about if you had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and someone came along and passed underneath your nose a nice freshly baked loaf of honey bread? That was the way Jesus Christ had to withstand temptation. That was the control he had over his emotions. And what about the greatest trial of all, which is obviously his beating and his crucifixion? I have a hard time saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, when somebody tries to kill me with words. I have a hard time with myself, emotionally, inside myself, with people scurrying around the parking lot taking license plates of people who were there to hear me speak. What about if those same people walked up to me and stuck a knife in my side? What about if they drove nails through my hands and feet and beat me within an inch of my life and I was in the process of dying? Would I then, at that time, be able to say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? How far have I got to yet grow emotionally? How far had Abraham grown when Abraham was able to contemplate and actually have the knife raised and to follow through with the sacrifice of his own son? How far had Daniel grown up emotionally when he was able to stand, fold his arms, and just look at the lions in the den and to have faith in God. How far had Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known by their Babylonian names, who were thrown into a fiery furnace and said, it doesn't matter what you do to us, we will serve God anyway. They didn't blubber, they didn't beg, they didn't scream. They didn't fall to their knees and whimper and hang on to the pants legs of the people who were about to throw them in there and say, please spare me, I'll do anything, anything, only don't throw me in there. But they stood fast on what they knew and what they believed. They had total emotional control of themselves. It says in God's word in Proverbs 16.32, let's turn to that and read it. The Proverbs, you know, have a great number of mind conditioners on them, or in them, rather, about emotion. Proverbs 16 and verse 32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that rules his spirit than he that takes a city. I have down here a whole bunch of Proverbs, but I won't take time to read them all, or only as a sample anyway. The whole book of Proverbs, and certainly Ecclesiastes, on um, there is a time for everything, a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time for this and a time for that. Shows the time, the appropriate time, to express one's emotions. What if God were like we are? What if God flew into anger when we upset him? What if God said, You always say this and that. You never do that and uh, thus and such. What am I going to do with you? How many times do I have to speak to you? What if God acted toward us by flying off the handle, getting short-tempered, getting angry. Why with just one unfortunate sweep of the arm, God could destroy the universe. But God has total control emotionally. He gave us our emotions for a great purpose. What is a sneeze? What is it? Well, it's a sudden explosion of breath that causes the clearing of the nostrils momentarily, but causes all sorts of nervous and other reactions in the body. I enjoy a great big, gusty sneeze. When I sneeze, it sounds like an explosion. Other people have little bitty sneezes. You can hardly hear them. And uh, other people are shocked and frightened when they hear a person sneeze very loudly. My wife, uh, every, every several times a week, jumps almost out of her chair when she's reading. If she doesn't know and I can't signal her, I'm about to sneeze. Isn't it funny that a Vietnamese or a person from Thailand or a person from Japan or a German or a person from Chile sneezes the same way you do? Isn't it funny that even though they speak a completely different language, that we all laugh alike, we say ha-ha or he-he or ho-ho, there aren't any other vowels I know that we use. We don't go hoo-hoo when we laugh. So in Vietnam, they laugh the same way we do. Isn't that amazing that we all laugh alike? When a terrible thing comes along and a person in Vietnam is sad and they cry, guess what happens? They sob. The sounds that are identical to American sounds, the tears identical to American tears, come out of their eyes. And that emotion is expressed in the same way. Now, maybe they don't know the word ouch. So we learn that. That's a dumb word. We might say, oh, or whatever it is we say uh, when, we, when we get hurt suddenly, we've perfected it so that we write it down. And it says, ouch, we have to learn that I maintain. We won't do that naturally. But we express certain emotions exactly alike. God has given us our emotions. He has given us the capacity for anger and told us to control it. He's given us the capacity for love and told us to develop it. He has given us every other, emotion of which we are capable, and they are so manifold and so many that to this day psychologists and psychiatrists can't really define them or describe them or predict them with any degree of safety. So when God's Word tells us that we must grow up in all things under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the one last and final way, perhaps, that is most difficult for us to grow in a physical environment is emotionally. Beyond that is growing up spiritually, but the two go hand in hand, and we cannot control our emotions unless we first learn to allow God's Holy Spirit to come into our minds to get rid of all the foolishness, the anger, the hatred, the jealousy, the resentment, the self-seeking selfishness that makes us want to always be satisfied first. And have all of our appetites and hungers satisfied at the expense of others, and to have the control over our emotions that Jesus Christ had over his. I know this. When I fly with someone else, I want to know that he is really Mr. Cool at the controls. I have flown with many different men, and have flown with some that have not always had that capacity or that quality. I have flown with others who have. I have heard it told or said that a boxer doesn't dare get mad that the world's worst thing that a person in the fight profession can do in the ring is lose his temper, because if he does, he's going to waste a tremendous amount of energy, and unless he's just lucky, he's going to get knocked out, because the man who keeps his cool and just measures his opponent, maybe it's a bad analogy, boxing is not a sport that God would approve, but the man that loses his temper in the ring, he's had it. The same thing is true in your marriage, your business, your family, as a child. You can't just lose control of these emotions. Those are our biggest problems spiritually, are our emotions physically. And when we control them with God's Holy Spirit, we will have a lot of our problems solved. So think about that during the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread, of the examples we've heard of and the way to grow up in all things in Jesus Christ.